there was a dump truck with 2,500 pounds of homemade explosives, goes into the truck, flips it, lands on top on the on the uh, roof, and it's on fire. Those guys die instantly. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Welcome to another educational edition of the Stigma-Free Vet Zone from our studio here overlooking the Milwaukee River in downtown West Bend. And today... As we did last week, we are going to stay right here with our guest, uh, Chris Swift. And last week, Chris shared his first two tours, deployments to Iraq. And today, he's going to continue on not only with his third deployment to Iraq, his deployment to Afghanistan, but then come back and really give us some great information, educational information on the struggles that he had when he came home and how he has gone about resolving those issues and where he is today with his statement that today, Chris has found, again, purpose in his life because of the programs and work that he does today. So now he's going to share with us how he got to that day. So welcome back, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Mike. Oh, it's been an honor, honor, honor. Uh, so let's just get right back to it. Come on, take us to uh, Iraq on the third uh, third tour. All right. So we, uh, back in Iraq with the combat engineers out of uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, we started in Tikrit, moved up to Mosul. Um, there were a lot of uh, building the infrastructure and things like that. You have to go out, be out on the on the sites for days, weeks. Um, some of the medics had to stay there for for the duration, so like two, three weeks, just building these buildings, getting the infrastructure ready, letting the uh, Iraqis move in, and taking care of taking care of business on that side. So, I mean, things are going. They're moving along. We're making some progress, getting them set up. We're doing really well. We're not taking a lot of direct fire, indirect fire. So on the FOB, we we took more indirect fire on the FOB than we did actually the forward operating base. Um, so we took more indirect fire from there than we did taking indirect fire out or direct fire out. So occasionally they would have the mortars come in and you know we'd have to get into the bunkers and and deal with that. Um, so we're going through, going through, 
trudging along and then we we start getting into the month of december so we had gotten there prior the prior october and we were supposed to be there till the beginning of january but they decided that it was going to be okay for to send us home about three weeks early so we could have christmas so we didn't miss two christmases one of the few times that i feel like the military was like wow we're we're going to do something nice for somebody (laughs) (laughs) so what year are we now chris this is 2008 so everything's going all right. We've already got our Connexes. Everything's packed, ready to go. And for whatever reason, we had another mission go out. So every time you go out on a mission, you always have to have a medic. So in this mission, the very last one, December 4th, 2008, I go out. I have no idea that we have a mission out. So I'm sitting back, and then all of a sudden, somebody comes in and tells me that our, our convoy was hit. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, so they went out on another right seat ride with the unit that was taken, taken over for us. So they were showing them something that they didn't show them already. Well, that day, a, a young man by the name of John Savage, he ended up dying. There was a dump truck with 2,500 pounds of homemade explosives, goes into the truck, flips it, lands on, top, on the, on the uh, roof, and it's on fire. Those guys die instantly unfortunately that mission should have never taken place so that was like the chain of command thought they were going to do something and they were going to be okay to go so that was the first deployment that i thought i was going to get through without losing anybody so on the very last mission i did but to top that off i get an email about two hours later saying from one of my really good friends who was my ncuic when i was at fort leonard wood saying that red died. So I'm going, I'm going home in about two weeks and red being my mentor, the guy who showed me everything. And the reason that I was able to be successful medically was all because of red. Cause he showed me everything. And then, like I said, on the last one, we had a meeting, my PA red and myself. And he was like, when you guys get back, we're going to go out for dinner. We're going to celebrate you guys getting back. And it was, that was one of the most devastating blows I took in the military, losing Red. I mean, he, he was in Vietnam, so he had Agent Orange, he had throat cancer, but he was just plugging along, he was working, everything's had, going. And then, combat oh, experience. Oh my God, unbelievable. And so that was like the double whammy. So for the next couple of weeks, so this is December 4th, we don't get home till December 15th, and it's just like... I, I can't believe this is happening, you know. And then we had to run into Savage's parents and his sister, and it's like I felt so bad because I didn't even know what to say to them. You know, it's very rare that I'm at a loss for words. We talked to them, and then, every, of course, everybody, when we got back, all we wanted to do was drink and party because that's what we do. We got to make up for the, for the days we didn't drink. Let, let me stop you for just a minute. Uh, we're, we're speaking with Chris Swift, who's on his third tour in Iraq uh, and just uh, leaving that deployment. But while you were there, let me just ask you two questions about that deployment. You're on your third deployment. Are you still believing in the mission? Um, I, I, I see some of the things that we're doing that's good. The people that come up and, like, they appreciate. And you can legitimately tell they appreciate it. You know, especially, like, kids, they'll come up and they'll sit there and they'll talk to you. You know, it's always you got to worry when, like, the kids – And like you're going to an area that has a ton of kids and they're nowhere to be found. That's when you know you're going to have a bad day. 
But when they're out there and they're like, hey, mister, mister, give me some chocolate, you know, and you give them some candy or you just sit there and talk to them, you play soccer with them, they dominated. I mean, they were so good at soccer. Like, I never played soccer in my life, but these kids would always want us to play. And, of course, we got all this gear on trying to play trying to play soccer with these 10-year-old kids, and they're just running circles around us. But at, at that point where they're out to go, they're able to go out and they're able to play sports freely and do stuff on their own without worrying about things. So, so you're seeing change that you're happy with? Yes. yes. I, I'm seeing the, the positive change. You know, and I know in the back of my mind that there's still a lot of bad guys here. ISIS is still here. You know, it's it's kind of disheartening that you can see all these good things with all the kids and everything, and then then all of a sudden you'll hear of something that ISIS did, and then it's on the news, and that's all they're talking about, and then we're getting briefed on it. They're like, all right, well, this is what happened. Be be on the lookout for this. And it, it, or, or the explosion of the truck with 2,500 pounds of bigger. <laughs> Correct. And that was, that, was, that was 450 meters from the front gate. So we could feel it. We could hear it and feel it. Wow. So, so you have that, and then you, you've been there two missions before, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but is that coming with you on this, you know, all the experiences of, uh, the, you know, the hypervigilance, what, what to expect? I mean, you're a seasoned soldier by now on your third tour. Yeah, so I think it becomes cumulative. It just just adds more and more, but you can't you can't take that time out and try to slow things down and try to be like, all right, well this happened. This is what we should do. It's all like, all right, well this happened. We're going out in six eight hours. Yeah, you know, rely on your training and keep pushing forward. Yep, you yeah. got to. So they you you have to numb those emotions, and then when you get home, where it's quote unquote safe, you know, we just drink. You can drink. You now can, we can yeah. drink. Some people do drugs, pills, and Whatever. stuff like that. Like, I, I know this might sound weird, but I was one of the lucky ones that alcohol was the was my vice. Because if I would have been on drugs, I would I wouldn't be here right now. I agree now. with you. I had the same experience. So so now you're home, and thank you for going back there. Uh, but now you're home, and continue on where you were with the drinking and, and the partying and, and getting now ready to for your next deployment. But okay, so now you're home and. Uh, after your third deployment, and you're you're getting into the drinking, the partying, and the after war things continue on from there. Um, so I get home, and of course, my brother and I are going to go out because that's what we do. We, you know, family members are home, and and it's around Christmas, so everybody, so even my relatives that are out of town are usually in town at that time. So we always plan. We'll go out for dinner, but then it always we're going to the bar right after, and you know, I'm home, and nobody even nobody really gives me a hard time that I'm drinking so much because they're like, oh, well, he's home on leave. You know, that that's normal. That's what he should be doing. Correct. And, and I just used the word normal, which the word normal has a million <laughs> definitions. Yeah, right. Daniel Webster's <laughs> edition, 10th edition can give you one. Yeah. And then the Mike Orban yeah. definition and the Chris Swift definition right. would be two totally different things really than what Webster thinks. Pick the normal that fits for today. Exactly. <laughs> and and make it and turn it into whatever makes you right. Yes. Whatever makes you whatever you're doing acceptable. So uh we go out and it's like my brother is like you don't have an off button. Meaning that when I start drinking like that's what I do. That's it's almost like my mission every morning is to go out and just get hammered drunk. And doing that, it's like it's muscle memory almost. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I, 
it's 11 o'clock and I haven't had a drink yet. You know, thinking like, oh, Jesus, man. Oh, I'm going to have to call somebody. We're going to have to go out for lunch. And then I'm going to have one or seven at lunch, you know, because that's what I do. I'm home on vacation. I'm home on leave. Get to the alcohol. Exactly. And at the time, I, I never really thought about it as a numbing experience. It was more like I knew I liked drinking and I knew I never felt bad drinking. Like I was never one of those guys who would sit there and my emotion would start getting the best of me. I'd start crying and then drinking would make me worse than that. Drinking actually helped me avoid that. So I never had to accept stuff, accept the negative stuff that was happening. And then people would ask me, oh, so what happened while you were there? I was like, well, we just, you know, we had three meals a day. Life was great. What do you think? It was really hot. Yeah. So, you know, people, we go to the bar and people be like, can I buy you a shot? I'm like, "Uh, only if you do a shot with me, whatever. You know, and then can I ask you a question? I'm like, okay, what, do you, what question do you want to ask? And then they would ask something like, oh, what's a, what's a normal day like out there? And then here we go with normal again. I go, well, are we talking about like the times when it's a little hotter than normal? You know, there's more stuff going on. There's more carnage, more death, all that stuff. And they're like, well, well, well not that. You know, I, <laughs> I can't really give you the, the Reader's Digest version <laughs> without telling you something potentially bad. So then I, uh, I go back to Fort Leonard Wood after leave, and then I go into um, re- my reenlistment. So I reenlist, and I go down to Fort Benning, Georgia. I was a medic at Ranger School. I wasn't a Ranger. I didn't go through Ranger School, but I was a medic there. And anybody out there who's a medic and really wants to do some really high-speed stuff and cool, get to do some cool stuff, go down to any of the, uh, for the Ranger training battalions because – as a medic there, you will have an opportunity to get slots to do the ranger schools and to do all the other stuff, you know. If you so, choose to. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's like instead of going to a unit where you got to hopefully be able to get one of the slots, which usually go to the non-medical personnel, you can get um, there. So I get there. I was supposed to go to um, special forces selection and uh, assessment. I... Uh, I did that right before I left Fort Leonard Wood. I did all the tests and all the pre-screening and everything. So when I get to Fort Benning, the first sergeant goes, hey, if you don't go to this SFAS, the Special Forces Selection and Assessment, if you don't go, we'll send you to a bunch of schools. And I'm like, all right. So I got there July 31st, 2009. And I'm like, all right, I can do that. And I was supposed to go November 17th to um, SFAS. So... I'm like, all right, we can do this. So then they have this dive medic school coming up. And they're like, do you want to go go to dive medic school? I'm like, sure. What I had dive medic? So then they have the divers. Underwater? Yeah. I was not a diver. I was a dive medic. So there's a big difference. Like the divers go through a special, t- the combat divers go through a special school and everything. I just know, I just learned how to treat them. So we go around in those little rubber boats, those black Zodiac boats, which that's a lot of fun. But I got three weeks in in uh, Flor- um, Key West in December. Who's not going to take <laughs> Who's not going to take three weeks in Key West in December? Paid, so it was perfect. And then uh, I go home. <laughs> so I go through the diabetic school. I get done. I go home. Got another leave, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, life is good." Blah blah blah. Go back to Fort Benning. 
Well, we have a guy who decides that he's he's getting ready to get divorced. He wants to go on a deployment so he can make some money. So when he comes home, he has money. Well, he was on steroids. So his blood pressure was through the roof. So he's going through the medical thing to get him sent to, get him sent to uh, Afghanistan, comes back because the doctor was like, you can't go. You got to come back in 30 days and we'll decide if we can send you from there. So our company commander comes down and he goes, hey, medics, this is on Wednesday. Tomorrow, I need a name of who's going to Afghanistan for this guy. And everybody's like, oh, Jesus. You know, we had a guy who just finished ranger school and had done any. That was the only thing he did in his military career. And he's like, I'm not going. But because he was a ranger, he was a tabbed ranger school graduate, they didn't make him go. Then they were going to send a guy who's having his first child in two weeks. And I'm like, oh. I was like, I'll go. You know, I'm not thinking. I'm like, all right, I've been to Iraq. I'll go to Afghanistan. We'll see. It was a little little different than what I expected, but I end up going to Afghanistan in March of 2010. I go to Camp Stone, which is Herat, which is about 60 kilometers east of Iran. Afghanistan's a little different because they do have the mountains, and I think they're better trained. Their, their militias are much better trained. So, like, when you get into a firefight with them, they, like, fight to the death. It's not, Like, the Iraqis will shoot at you, and they'll run. Then they'll shoot a few more at you, and then they'll run, and, you know, they'll try are, to get are away. Are you referring to opposing forces? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, well, look at how long Afghanistan's been around. Look yeah. at how many, how many people tried to go in and conquer Afghanistan, yes. and a total of zero have accomplished that. Mm-hmm. The Afghans are, they're warriors. Yes. So, um... And you recognize that immediately. Oh, like our first, our first action uh, with them, I was blown away because there was four guys. Not literally. Yeah. No, yeah. not literally. Yeah. But f- there were four guys, and they fought until we killed them all. And we were in a convoy of about 104 vehicles. You know, a lot of them were jingle trucks from... Um, guys that were helping move move equipment from Balamagab and bringing it down to Camp Stone. Um, so that was in like June of 2010 is when this happened. So I was there as an individual tasker. So first half I was with 82nd Airborne. Second half I was with the 4th Infantry Division. So my job was just to be there as a medic, help out with uh, the Regional Support Command West. So I didn't really do a lot with with them. I got them their shots and stuff like that. If they were sick, took them stuff. So they just said, go, go into the aid station. 82nd had just lost three three medics, so they needed a medic to go. And I was like, all right, I'll go. And came back. And I remember this because I was calling my dad on, I remember it was June because I was calling my dad on Father's Day on the sat phone, satellite phone. And then all of a sudden we started taking indirect fire. So we started taking mortars. So I had to hang up just so he wouldn't have, or, or my mom wouldn't have had to hear that. So, and they, these four guys were just going at it. And we had probably six 50 cals, 50 caliber machine guns that would have just blown them guys to pieces. But they fought till the end. Like we saw all four of them and they were, I mean, there's not too many people that are going to be like, all right, me and my three buddies here are going to take you and your, 170 guys on you know that doesn't 50 caliber machine exactly so get through that come back a lot of transitions you know one of the great things is i met a lot of good people 
through these deployments. You know, there were people in my unit. There were people out of my unit. One, one of the guys, especially who was with 82nd Airborne, his name is Travis Mills. He lost both arms, both legs in 2012. So, but I met him, and he was just one of those guys that he just, he just stuck with you. You met him. You, you never forgot meeting him. And let, let me stop you just for a, a quick question, Chris. Uh, we're speaking with Chris Swift, who is a, uh, on his fourth tour. This tour is first one in Afghanistan. But let me just ask you about the mission now. You've been three tours in Iraq, and you know that mission, whatever you felt about it. Now you've come to a completely different battlefield. You've experienced the difference in the opposing forces. Do you believe in the mission here, or is it just continuation of I'm an Army medic and I'm doing my job? I think it's a combination of all of them. I do think that... Some of the mission was all right, but it, it seems like when we went out and we would give them money and give them supplies, they're our best friend. Winning the hearts and the minds of the Winning people. the hearts and minds is probably one of my least favorite sayings ever because we had to do that. We had to do that in Iraq, and we had a company commander who he, he really believed in that mission. And... Um, in Afghanistan, though, when we'd give them all the stuff, they'd be good to go. And then all of a sudden, they had responsibilities. All right, we need you to pull guard on here so nothing happens to the people in this town, you know. And then all of a sudden, there'd be the town would just be lit up one night. And you know, they know because when you talk to them, they're like, "Oh, I don't you know, know yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah." So that part of the mission, that part of the mission was difficult because one, it was my first one in Afghanistan, my only one in Afghanistan, and it's just hard to see all the effort that some people are putting in. And it seems like we're almost going backwards because we're giving these people all these supplies and all this money and they're turning around and they're not, they're not doing their part of the, you know, they're part of the deal. We saw the same thing in Vietnam. And I think it was not only frustrating that you're giving them these things, but you would think to yourself, this is your country, your freedom. Don't yeah. you want to fight for your own? Why are we giving you things to fight for your own country? I don't, did that happen? Oh, my God. So, like, when you had, I wish there would have been a video for that because I was, like, jumping out of my skin when you said that. You know, like, this is your country. You're getting to, you're experiencing. So, this is 2010. They are experiencing things they never had before, freedoms they've never had before. And it's like, what do you do you want to continue to do this or do you want to live under some, somebody else's rule? And it's like under the rule of fear. That's how it was with Saddam. Everybody was afraid of Saddam and his boys and then the henchmen, you know, and his daughter. It, it, it's just crazy that they accept living in fear. It's almost like it's a learned behavior and they don't know how to get out of it. But they're nine years into these freedoms, nine years. And it's like, you're either, you got to figure out, do I really like, this freedom? Do I like being able to get up and do stuff I want to do? Or do I have to worry that I'm going to go, I'm going to go over here to my friend who has all these sheep and I want to buy a sheep and take one home with me. But I got to think, oh, is the Taliban going to come and just murder me on the way over there? So I, I, I think there was, this is so similar to Vietnam because there was that if they're with the Americans, they want to please you because they don't want you retaliating against them. They, they, they want to be your friends, so you'll protect them. But then when they're with the Taliban, they got to be with them, and they can't tell them that they've been friends with the American forces. They're, they're, they are in a, in a controversy. They're trying to please both sides, so they aren't annihilated. But the, the other thing that would really upset me, and I wonder if this happened in, in Afghanistan or Iraq, if you don't want your freedom, why should Americans die for it? 
that would that, that really pissed me off. Yeah, and it's for everyone that really wants is willing to die for what to make the future better. You know, you find guys that are just whether they're incapable or they just don't even want to try. That's like that. You see this and you're like, all right, it's going to take a lot of work for this to be to continue for us to keep moving forward. So if you want to if you want to just sit here and just be like, all right, well, I hope it's going to happen. Well, that hope is not going to do anything without any work behind that. So it's when in the hearts and minds is probably the greatest fallacy. In the yes. World. <laughs> 100%, you know, because in some cases you do, you, there are some over there that, that, that you do help. But in the, at the end of the day, you know, in, in five years from now, you know, the only thing that they're going to have left is like, oh, yeah, the Americans were here for 20 years, yeah. you know. And see the shiny coin he gave me? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. well, at the other side of that, when we do talk about winning the hearts and minds, uh, winning the hearts and minds, I always I came to believe that was to appease the people at home. You know, I, I agree 100% with that. Like, I have an issue with the media being over there and the uh, American people. I don't have a problem with the American people getting updates on what's going on, but I don't think they need to know right away. Like, it's, it shouldn't be like you Google it and it, it gives you, all right, the, it was updated seven seconds ago. Like, I think when you have the media out there, one, you got to take out extra members of your unit to, to uh, sure. protect them, you know, and whether they're the best journalists or the worst journalists, whatever, we still have to bring other guys out there, which makes more targets for the enemy. Plus, when we take them out and they're giving updates to the American people, the American people aren't the only ones that can go online and see where we are. So it gives up positions. And people that I have dealt with in the past are, are like, yeah, well, we're paying the, uh, we're paying your salary to, so we should be able to get updates all the time. I go, when it's putting us at risk, I don't think you should. I think 24 to 48 hours later is okay. You know, maybe people won't believe me, or they won't be on my side on this one, but I can't imagine deciding that, oh, well, yeah, we should have it 10 seconds. You know, that should be like the longest way that we, we should be behind. But I'm like, when you give up the positions and then they see the the way that we do our tactics and, you know, st tactic, technique, procedures, and it's like, why do you need to know right now if it's going to potentially cost us one life or six injured like or our strategy yeah what we're doing where we're going understanding what our mission is but the other thing that always got me watching this stuff they're looking for the sensational they're looking for the humvee that blows up they're looking for the news they don't want to see you and what talk to you when you're just walking down the street and everything's fine it was was that a problem with the press well i you know it, it becomes subjective what they think they're seeing and what we what we're seeing with our experience and having gone through it it's hard so you take a journalist who has zero experience they've read a couple of books on war that does not reading a book on something does not make you a resident expert or the yeah. SME yeah. the subject matter expert <laughs> you know and they they're like oh man that guy they shot four RPGs the rocket propelled grenades at you guys and you guys shot a 203 grenade <laughs> and you know, why did you do that? Yeah. Um, because they're shooting at us. <laughs> yeah. 
So then they're like, oh, don't you think that was a little excessive? Uh, no, we should have just wiped them out, you know, because if they're throwing RPGs at us, they're going to be throwing RPGs at somebody else. Like If you don't stop them. Yeah, and and it's kind of difficult because they always have questions, you know, and they're very inquisitive, which is good to get the news out, but it takes away from us being on the mission. Like, hey, here's our mission. You were in our mission brief. This is what we're doing. This is what you're doing. This is how our security is set up for you. So I, I always thought that was important uh, that, that if we're going to be doing this, the quicker we get this done, the quicker we get these wars done, get in, get these wars over. We don't need to be publicizing it. Get on the mission without these people tagging along with us, without hiring the, the, the foreign nationals to be part of this so we can please the people at home. Get these wars done. Uh, that that was the other thing that always stuck with me, that the waste of time, as you said, with having these people there. Yeah, and I, I think, like you said, if we can get in and get out on these wars, I get it, our rules of engagement, they're there for a purpose because you don't want war criminals. I get that. But at some point in time, you've got to realize that when you're getting shot at every day and you fire back and it makes it difficult for you to be very open when you're looking around like, all right, it's over there. I see two people. Do I have the grounds to fire back with the rules of engagement? You know, that stuff shouldn't be in the mind, you know, and war is war is nasty. You know, like the Taliban, they just absolutely, they massacre people. And if they don't massacre them, they torture them, you know, and that's, I mean, if I was, if I was to be caught as a POW, I'd want them to shoot me immediately. War. It's war. Yeah. And war. it's hard to explain. Yeah. It's hard to put it into words what it actually is. Like it's one of those things you got to experience yeah. to fully be able to understand it. Yeah. Especially when you're going to a foreign country, and I don't want to get off on a tangent on this one either, but you're going to a foreign country to fight a war, but you have to do it by the rules that make the people at home happy and safe. Uh, th that has always been difficult. It's, it's hard to do that when everything you're doing, as you say, the rules en of engagement are, are a little, I, I can't critique them, but they're hard to follow. I mean, sometimes you're doing things so quickly just in response to staying alive that you, you're going to have accidents, but then you're supposed to be court-martialed for them. Uh, difficult uh, difficult oh, decision. Extremely difficult. Yeah. And then the people that are deciding whether you're getting court-martialed or not are usually people that have zero experience in what you just experienced. Have no idea why you did that, how that happened, the emotional hypervigilance. Well, what's the result of hypervigilance? Well, an extremely Extremes. quick rea yeah. reaction. <laughs> yeah, so so now, anyway, let's, let's move forward. You're, you're, you're coming back home now? Yep. I'm uh, so... I get back home in March of 2011. So the girl I'm dating at the time, come home, having we're having fun. Then I have to go back to my uh, duty station. Well, they were like, hey, we got a class out in um, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Six-week class, do you want to go? I'm like, absolutely. You know, why not? They're going to send me to a school, just another medic school that – I can just kind of hang out with some friends, some of the guys that I met when I was in Afghanistan. So I go there, and while I'm there, um, my girlfriend at the time sends me a picture of a pregnancy test where she's pregnant. So, all right, now I'm back. Now I decide I'm going to have to get out of the Army because if I'm going to be a dad, I want to be able to be home and experience all that stuff. So fast forward through the next nine months, you know, going through it, I had a lot of days of leave, so um, I had terminal leave, but I decided 
that I was going to do the reserves when I got home. So I come home December 3rd, 2012, or 2011. My daughter's born December 6th, 2011. So I had like three days to kind of get back into the swing of things, and now I have a kid. And then um, a month and a half later, I start school. So I just got out of the military. I came home. I didn't decompress. I ended up becoming a father, which I knew was going to happen, but until it really happens, it's kind of like, whoa. And then I... Without the war Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I go through that process and then, you know, trying to have a relationship when I'm totally not all right. I'm completely discombobulated upstairs in my mind. And, you know, I'm going to try to start school and all that. And then it became overwhelming for me. So what do I always do? I just, my go-to is drinking. That's it. You know, there's nothing that makes me feel better than drinking. Where's your sleep right now? Oh my God. My sleep was all over the place. Like I was since 2004, my sleep has been off. Like just recently I have gotten a CPAP. So that's, uh, it's helped, but I just don't like the thing on my face, but coming home, the sleep schedule, I'm probably sleeping three hours a day and it's just difficult. And then having a newborn. So I was taking night classes and my daughter's mom was taking, or was working during the day. So she was a nurse. So I had to take care of her in the morning. So I couldn't like when she would go to sleep, I would fall asleep 10 seconds before she would start crying and be, be up. So that wasn't helping my sleep pattern. But then every time I had free time, well, we ended up breaking up in the beginning of uh, February. So we were together two months when I got home with, with my daughter. So my daughter has never known us to be together. But I was drinking at such a, a pace that it, it was very abnormal for that, <laughs> for a normal, per, for wrong word, for just the, the average person doing their daily stuff. Like people wouldn't go out and just drink until you can't see. You know, that was my problem. I had people would come pick me up at the bar and I would be like passed out on the on the bar stool. You know, that's one. That's not a good look for anybody. You know, if it happened one time, oh, that's excusable. But but you're way beyond concerned of whether this looks good or. Not. Yeah, oh, I don't care. I just don't, I just don't want to feel anything. You know, I'm I'm having issues that now it's when do I get to see my daughter and. You know, I came home, I made all these sacrifices. You need to, you need to follow my rules, what works for me, which that's completely irresponsible to think that that's even a legitimate retrospect. Yes. Oh, at the time I was like, everything I was saying was that, that was right. You know, if, if I were to say this, would this make sense to you? It's me coming home. I'm the veteran. I was at war. I saw this. I did this. I participated in that. It's not about you. 100%. That's exactly, that's exactly the thing. And I think that's one of the things that affects a lot of veterans, you know, because they don't, they, they really don't know how to feel when, when we get home, you know, it's difficult. It's, it's the transition part of it. And it, 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 it's very difficult, you know, so expected. Yes. And then a lot of people had to watch, watch me just fall apart. You know, I, I was thinking maybe I should just get a job. And then um, it was hard for me finding the job, just getting out the, you know, there weren't a lot of jobs out there. It's not like today where I could have went anywhere and got a job. 
you know. But, but not just find a job, but find a purpose. Find <laughs> some purpose in life that was more than drinking. And, it, and it's almost an impossible thing to do because you're numbed out. Uh, I mean, I was numbed out. and There's nothing that gave me satisfaction. Did you have any interest when you came home and things that had been interesting to you before the war? Hobbies, sports, a and friends. Did, did you maintain the same group of friends when you came home that were your close friends before the military? Um, I, I think a lot of the relationships were like Facebook relationships. Like, you haven't seen these guys for a while. Yeah, well, we served together and stuff like that. Everybody gets out, and they have their own different way of dealing with things. So for that matter... I was able to keep in touch with that and then occasionally see people. But I think in the back of the back of my head, I knew I was drinking way too much and I didn't want people to see that. So I was like, all right, you know, I got to start, maybe I got to start doing something a little different, but I continued down that path. Then I decide that, well, it's one thirty in the morning. I've been drinking for a solid mm, nine, 10 hours. This is the, this is the perfect time for me to drive 35 minutes to go to the <laughs> casino cheapers. To go to the casino because the casino is I'd where everything's going to be great. And more friends there to drink with. Oh, perfect. Yep. Well, except on the way there when I was driving 100 miles an hour going down the street, and then I get pulled over. So to make a long story short, I get my first DUI. So these guys are like, oh, you've been drinking. I'm like, yeah. So I have to go through the whole process. Go get booked in. Go, go sit in jail and wait for somebody to come pick me up. Um, that was just kind of like a blip on the radar. You know, I'm like, uh, it was bound to happen. You know, like I'm trying to justify my poor behavior and my shitty decision-making skills and blame and not take the, not take the blame. It was my fault. I got in the, it was my fault that I went and I drank so much. And then it was my fault for getting in my car, knowing I drank too much. And then to decide that I'm going to go 35 minutes away for another poor choice. Like, <laughs> but again, poor choice in retrospect. Yes. Back at the time, this was just covering the pain. It's cover covering whatever's on your mind. It's I need to do something. I, I need to do something extreme. You know, that's why the going 100 miles an hour that's a or good word, extreme or going to the casino because you can gamble and you might win. You might not, you know, and but do you think it had something to do also with not just gambling and winning, but. You, you referred to it earlier. You had all this stuff in your head that you, that was going out. Do you think the drinking, the high speed, the gambling, all this was to avoid actually facing or trying to resolve this crap in your head that you didn't understand? Oh, I definitely think it was because the unknown, I was like, it's better to keep it there. So at, when I would drink, it would just keep it. It would suppress the feelings. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, over time and stuff, you realize, all right, this was just this was just a horrible idea, bad things to do. So, so after this, I'm like, oh man, I got to really start getting, I got to start doing better with things. I can't, I can't go out and get DUIs, you know, cause it's always like when it, or when it happens, you're all like, all right, I'm going to do things different. I'm not going to make these same mistakes, blah, blah, blah. So fast forward about six months later, I start working at the ER in Grafton. So the guy that hired me, he was a, he's a Marine, Marine veteran and, like, he was a pretty intense guy, so him and I kind of hit it off from the veteran side of it because, like, my uh, my interview, I was I was kind of intense, and I, I went off on a tangent talking about it, 
And then there was the educator and then our HR person. And they were like, well, we'll get back to you. And he's like, nope, I love this guy. We're going to hire him, you know, right there. Because I don't think the educator and the uh, HR thought that I would have been a good candidate to work in the ER because the intensity was high. So, But one understood it, the other didn't. Correct. That's, and that's one of the things that we, we got to try to convey to the civilian world because the civilian world knows that, all right, this person was in, in the military, in war, wartime situation. They, did, they have some combat experience, and things are a little different for them. You know, and it's hard because it's not going to be the same for everybody. You know, there's no cookie cutter way. There's no, there's no way to say, all right, that person, this is what's going to work for them. This is what's not going to work for them. So it, it kind of helped. And then one of the docs I worked with, he also, he was in Iraq. He was, he was a vet and we would talk back and forth, you know, and we would laugh about some stuff and people, they're like, wow, your humor is a little weird. I'm Military like, humor. Yep. Yes, yeah. I'm like, our whole culture is weird. So like, if you had to sit and just just watch like a, a, a reality TV season, not like the ones where they do it now, like where we just have it just somehow we pick somebody to be mic'd up and all that and go around and, you know, just doing that kind of stuff so people could see, oh, my God, this is a reality TV show, but this is the real life, you know. Now reality shows are like 80% they, they script it and then 20% might be real. But, like, if they could just see for, like, 10 episodes – 30 minutes an episode, you could just see how the, our culture goes amongst each other and, like, the, the amount of vocabulary that goes back and forth and you're just going back and forth with each other. And it's just it's, – it's awesome for us and it's therapeutic for us, but people look at us like that's not normal. But, but when you say therapeutic, I think that's a good word for it because sometimes we laugh this stuff off because it's, it, it's either laugh it off or cry, cry it off. off. Yeah. Yep, 100%. Yeah. I think that's an important aspect that we need to deal with. We, we do have our own culture, and it's hard for people to understand why we do things the way we do, you know. But, there, but there's a saying that I have seen before that is something along the line of, if I have to explain it to you, you'll never understand. If, uh, if, I expla- if you've been there, I don't need to explain it to you. Two different things. And I think it's almost impossible to explain our experience of that war to somebody who hasn't been there. Um, Not because it's arrogance, but I don't know how to explain it. I really don't have the vocabulary to explain it. Oh, I think it's unbelievable. Like, you have to see it to to really believe it. And and then you won't believe it. Correct. And that's why we have the trouble when we come home. So so now you're back home. You've gone to work in the ER. Yes. Keep going from there. Yeah, so working in. And I loved, like, in the beginning, I loved it. It was great. It was good for me. It kind of it kind of gave me a little more structure and, you know, dealing with patients again. You know, the one thing I had as a medic in the Army, you have so much autonomy and you can do so much. I can do everything up to, you know, crike, chest tube, any of that stuff. But in a civilian hospital, I can do IVs. That's the highest I can do. I met a lot of good people and then I would go golfing with friends. So I now I have activities and I'm starting to fill my um, schedule up with stuff that's healthy behavior. So my drinking kind of tones back a little bit, you know, because now I'm doing all this other stuff to kind of fill the time that I was drinking and be respectable. A yes. Bit. <laughs> yes. So, and I work nights, work at nights is work at nights is hard. And then when your sleep is your sleep schedule is awful as it is working third shift is not, is not the answer. 
So we'll fast forward. I have some really good friends. We'll fast forward to about 2018. So I had just gotten out of the, the reserves in the beginning, in March of 2018. So when I was in the reserves, I went to a combat engineer unit, which was awesome in the reserves. And I went to a medical unit in the reserves, and there was probably one of the worst units ever because I love being a medic, but the medical corps as whole as a whole, I think they're lazy, and I don't think that they care about their job as much as they, you know, think they do. It's like we had officers that would go sit in their vehicle until like they would have morning formation, and then we'd go to lunch, and then we'd come back have formation, and then. Um, dismissal so they would be there for the formations and that's it that's all they would do you know and back in 2007 they had an article in the army Times saying that there are the the people that are able to deploy that haven't deployed 35 percent of all those people are in the medical core you know so the medical they just their standards are are <laughs> they try to make it lower there's one standard throughout the military but the the medical corps, I seem, uh, I think, tries to push it down a little bit. Don't get me wrong. I love, I love being a medic. I love the nurses, the docs, the PAs, the nurse practitioners, and the other medics. But it was not my best experience in the military. For and the, then I for the discipline. Yeah, yeah the yeah. discipline was just not existent. But that, do you think there's something to do with that, and where you're going to be going right now? And that's finding the passion to do this, as opposed to finding. Uh, the responsibility to do it, uh, the assignment to do it. Uh, and being assigned to do this as a combat medic going over there, you have to get over the fear of going there in the first place. But I still hold combat medics, the ones who we saw in, in combat, the very, very highest regard. Well, I was very lucky because I went with, the, in the beginning, in the initial push and everything, I was with the infantry. And the infantry... A lot of people would always make fun of them, saying they're the dumbest in all the military, blah, blah, blah. But let me tell you, if I had to go today, if they called me up right now and said, hey, you're going over, and these are the units you could pick, I would take the infantry regardless. Well, I, I could comment on that. Having been in the infantry, they always say when, you, when they test you to be in the military, they try to find out what you're, what you're most highly uh, suited for, what, what personal talents you have. The, the difficulty in choosing that for an infantry is we're good at all of these different aspects, and they can't figure out which one we're best at. And, uh, you know, so it's not that you have a particular thing that you're good at. We're just good at all of them, and they can't find out which one that is. Yeah. So. That was by far and away my best um, experience in the military. It's funny. Like my buddy Steve Holden, he's a retired first sergeant. When I got orders and, he, and I showed him, he was like, you're going to the infantry. He said, that's going to be your favorite part of your military career. And he was 100% right. Uh, we're speaking with Chris uh, Swift, who has come home from his fourth tour, three in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, and now he's moving on to a civilian life. He's had uh, a daughter, and he's broken up with the, the mother. He's no longer in a relationship with her. And Chris, I want to really move forward a little bit. You will run into a couple more DUIs along the way. Yeah. Get us up to where you are today because the organization and the work you're doing as peer mentoring is extremely important, and I don't want that uh, to slip by. Okay. Um, I'll just – so <coughs> I get out of the military in 2018. One of my best friends dies March 5th. I had talked to him the 3rd and the 4th, so that was a struggle. I 
really started drinking again. So then July 5th, I get a second DUI and I'm like, oh, I don't know what's going on. And then I continue to drink. And then February 8th, 2019, I get a third DUI. So after this one, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. So I go to inpatient rehab at the, at the Dom, domiciliary 123. VA Milwaukee. VA Milwaukee. And then two weeks after that, I go into jail in Ozaukee County for seven months. So I'm in jail and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What can I do? So I filled out applications. And then when you get a call for an interview, so I, ha- I got to go do my aftercare, my outpatient at the VA at building 43 at the VA in Milwaukee. I would call them and tell them, well, I'm in jail right now. I can only make it such and such a time and you will have to send a fax for me to be able to get out. So a lot of places were like, we're good. <laughs> Thanks. We click. Yeah, yeah. We appreciate your time, but I think we're going to go in a different direction. I'm not what laughing do you mean? at you. Yeah, that's, 100%. I'm that's with the you. On military that. humor. Yeah. So fast forward a little more. I'm in outpatient rehab. Jason Fisher over at the uh, VA in Milwaukee makes sure that all my all all my groups that I get a fax sent to the jail and I'm doing, I'm going this day at this time, this day at this time. And it's, and it's there. It's like, that helped me out a lot. So while I'm in these groups and I'm like healing from all, all the other stuff that is going on and, you know, just being in jail, it sucks. And then having to tell my daughter one thing when it's something totally different here, I am like, you can't lie to me. You can't lie to me, but here I am lying to her. So I get this, Captain John D. Mason thing. So I fill out an application. Speak for John D. Mason is application for. Okay. So um, the Captain John D. Mason Veteran Peer Outreach Program is uh, a program that was started by Mr. Joe Tate, who was best friends with Captain John D. Mason. Captain Mason was a decorated Marine in Vietnam, awarded the Bronze Star with V device for valor. So the fourth highest award you can get in a combat environment. So he comes home, he starts a business, starts a family, but he's suffering silently. Fast forward to 2013, he gets hurt. So now he's got the physical ailment, suffering silently, financial problems because he can't work. And he decides that it's too much for him. So he writes a letter to, he dies by suicide. He writes a letter to his wife, his best friend, Mr. Joe Tate, and his two adult children, and one to all of them. In the one to Mr. Tate, who sponsors our program, it says, get me to the VA, so they can find out what's wrong with me so you can help those other guys. So fast forward about four or five years later, I believe it was 2018 when they started the program. And the idea is getting veterans into the VA system because out of the 20 to 22 that die every day by suicide, 70% of them are not even in the VA system. So we're missing out on that. And then, um, with that, it helps us, um, with the, uh, peer support. So our program comes out of the medical college. So Mr. Tate went and talked to the medical college and says the medical college of Wisconsin. So he wanted to make sure that people knew that, all right, we have this program. It comes from the medical college. This is what we're doing. And when I applied, um, and I went and I interviewed, so we had to interview and then we had to interview with all the people that were in the program. And, (laughs) 
So I always tell people, I said, hey, they just wanted somebody who was in the military, did some shit, and got in a lot of trouble. I was like, congratulations, I check all those boxes. <laughs> That's nothing, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then, so with this, when I got into it, um, they're like, you're going to be one of the peers. And then I had to do the peer support course. So then I, you know, dealing with veterans and stuff, we go to programs. Well, then COVID hits. So then it kind of puts everything on a back burner. So everything's through Zoom, WebEx, Teams. It's kind of bum or phone calls. But we were able to we're able to start going back and doing things. And then I became the peer supporter, a certified peer support. Chris Swift, thank you so much. Hey, it's my pleasure, Mike. Thank yeah, you. Really, really an honor. And I want to thank our guests for sharing this very educational episode with us. And Chris Swift, who was a combat medic in Iraq and Afghanistan, is now peer mentor for the John D. Mason program at Medical College of Wisconsin, but also working with the VA Hospital in Milwaukee. Thank you for joining us. And I want to make sure that everyone understands that we, as a podcast, are supported by the Charles E. Cooley Foundation in Milwaukee. And they are the people to go to if you're suffering depression or suicidal thinking. And... Their support has been uh, j just so important to us over this past year, and I uh, hope it continues. But check out the Charles E. Uh, Kubley Foundation at charleseekubleyfoundation.org, and don't hesitate to get in touch with a human voice, somebody immediately if you need to know them. And you're going to find that at the vet uh, Veterans Resource Number at 1-800-273-8255, and then press 1 or text to 838 255 chat uh, and don't hesitate to call that as Chris has mentioned and, and I would certainly agree with that very first call is not only the hardest one to make but it's probably the most uh, therapeutic and and uh, and beneficial to you in the long run so thank you for joining us uh, for Bob Bach and Aaron Schroffnagel I am your host on stigma free vet zone Mike Orban and remember this is educational it's not stigmatizing Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.